Hi everyone, Sam here, the host of Tapped into Bowhunting and Archery. The opinions expressed on this show may not necessarily represent Titanium Archery Products as a company. While I do have a great deal of experience as an archer, I don't consider myself an expert in any particular area other than the products I design and produce for TAP. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Tapped into Bowhunting and Archery. This is episode number eight. Sam Schaefer here. And I have with me another guest on the line. We've been doing a number of these episodes with Team TAP members, having them come on, talk about what it is that uh, they find of most interest in TAP products and the company. And we also share stories about hunting and just general experiences. So welcome to the show, Josh Mahoney. Hey, thanks for having me, Sam. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. I thank you for giving us the time. So we have a number of things we discussed ahead of time we'd like to get into, and I always start these off with uh, not forgetting to talk about how it is that the person came to find out about TAP and try to get into to some degree what products they use from us. So tell us how you found out about TAP. Um, it was a couple years ago. I believe it may have been the late archery season of 2016. And I had posted a photo on um, Instagram of my bow just laying across my uh, stand rail. And, you know, of course, I had hashtags in it, you know, deer hunting, you know, bow hunting archery. I can't even remember. But um, somehow, uh, Tap's social media page, you know, got connected most likely through those uh, hashtags. And they Mm -hmm. started up. following me and commented on my post, which I, I don't know if that was you or Dusty or who was running it, you know, years ago. Probably um, me. But initially, yeah, and that's, that's kind of what, you hmm. know, started my interest. I was like, hmm, you know, I wonder who that is and, and right. checked out their page. And when I saw the Suppressor Elite, I was like, man, that looks a lot like the stabilizer I use now hmm. um, and or back then. The stabilizer I was using, um, and I don't know if you're familiar with them, the really, really old fiber check made yeah, them, and yeah. they were called a hydraulic mm-hmm. hydraulic stabilizer. Yep. And so it, it had, you know, high, and it, it, it's a decent concept. It, it's definitely outdated now, but the fluid would yeah. move slowly in it as you would move your bow and things. And it, it worked well for what I did at the time, but mm-hmm. I was like, man, you know, it's this is getting old. I could use an upgrade. I'm intrigued by this company. So I bought mm-hmm. a, a 10 inch uh, green suppressor elite That's right. and yeah. loved it. Yeah. I immediately loved it. Um, I thought that the, the early video you did with Dusty explaining the benefits and values of using titanium stabilizers, I thought that was a very credible video, a very convincing video. And then when I screwed it on the end of my bow, I was, I was hooked. Yeah. Loved it. Yeah. I actually remember that. I remember interacting with you back then and, you know, selling you that first one. And you mentioned that old video and it's, it's funny. It seems so long ago now, but it, of course it wasn't really that long ago when you think about the, you know, a company being in existence, but you know, the early days of us putting these products out and talking about them, it, it was, it was uh, uncharted territory, you know, really. It's like we, we didn't know how people would respond. We didn't know if we reached out to someone like you on social media, if they would, 
you know, consider that, uh, you know, almost like an intrusion or they would be welcoming and interested. And you were, you're one of those people. You had a lot of curiosity. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I appreciated the gesture and that's one, one good positive thing from a business and marketing perspective about social media is there are so many different ways to reach people and it can be done quickly. It can cover a lot of ground and everything. And, um, I, I, know for certain that social media has definitely helped tap up to oh, the yeah. point, you oh, know, yeah. for sure through marketing avenues and things like that. And right after I got um, that suppressor lead is when you did your very, very first round of recruitments yeah. from brand ambassadors. Yeah. And I made a deal with myself. I was like, you know, if I really like this, I'll join that team. Mm-hmm. I won't join blindly. I loved it. Took you know, no time at all for me to experience the difference. And I immediately gravitated towards joining the team. And, um, you know, we've got a lot of great team members, you know, um, from all different walks of life, all different parts of the country. Um, It's really a great team and a great company uh, to be a part of. I'm I'm very proud to be a part of this company. I'm proud to have people that are as competent as archers and bow hunters as yourself with the team that to me, that is so critical to have that level of credibility amongst the team. You're very knowledgeable about tuning and archery and aerodynamics and aeroflight, all these different areas that matter to me personally. And, you know, we want to have a nice mix of people. You know, we don't, none of us, I think are really what we would say are experts, but we all have our particular areas that are, I guess, strong suits. And, you know, so I'm really proud to have you be part of it. And it means a lot that we have this ongoing support, you know, year in and year out. There are certain people now we're seeing that are active and are they're always here. And that's just, uh, you know, from aside from a business success perspective, that just means a lot to me as a person. I just value that a lot. And I, I really appreciate it. So, yeah, there's uh, there's a lot you could get into as far as, you know, what the product did for you. And, you know, we, I don't know that that helps people necessarily understand um, because a lot of times people see that as subjective. So I don't ask people, for example, you know, what was your accuracy prior and then after using our product? I just think it's too subjective to even get into those things. But to say that you felt differences, you see obvious differences is what people need to hear. And I think that's, that's really one of the biggest keys. Um, so that's how you've kind of came to find out about us. And of course you're still involved. And as you mentioned, uh, team member recruitment, that's going to be happening again real soon for the public. So each episode, I make sure I say that if you're thinking about being involved with our team, now's a great time to get it, to get on board. It'll be the beginning of January. We make that open to everyone. So, um, there's that. And now we can talk about some of the other more specific topics that relate to, not just tap, but relate to how we hunt, why we hunt, uh, what it means to us. And I think that's something that I like to focus on more than anything here. I don't want to turn this in every episode into an infomercial about tap. I just don't think that's that that would get boring quickly in, in my view. You know, so let's talk about hunting. What was uh, your 2018 season like? Well, it, it was a roller coaster, um, full of the highest highs and the uh, lowest lows. Um, yeah. uh, I spent a lot of time on stand, saw a lot of deer. Um, you know, I only saw two bucks 
that I wanted to take um, with a bow in my hand. And uh, one of them was actually a one-horn spike. Um, but he was just a really, really big body deer, and mm-hmm. I could tell by the way he was acting when he was pursuing the doe that he always stayed in the shadows. Mm-hmm. And, and if she had a doubt, he, he would he would back off mm-hmm. and, and was looking. I really wanted to to take him. I thought, felt like that'd have been a good deer to take, but it just didn't work out. And um, in late October. Um, I was not expecting crazy rut activity yet. It, it seemed like it hit a little early, at least here in Indiana. I don't know how it was in Pennsylvania or Maryland. Um, I think but, it was early here too. I do. Yeah. yeah. And, and then I've noticed good uh, post-rut activity too, but I'll, I'll get to that in a little bit. But I decided that uh, a little after 11 o'clock, um, I'd seen a few deer. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go back to the camper and regroup. And, um, you know, I get climbing down the tree and I see two does moving towards me with a quickness. And I was like, yeah, somebody bumped him or something. I'll get stopped here. And then I see big magnum eyeballing him. And I'm like, yeah. oh boy. I said, well, I'm going to try and get this bow up as quick as I can. And I did it. Um, you know, the lead doe ended up spotting me because she eventually got to within 10 yards of me. So, duh. You know, I figured I'd try it. They spooked. He never saw me, but mm. with them being two mature does, he just looked at them and he's like, yeah, I think I'll keep following them. Um, <laughs> so I didn't get a shot. Later that afternoon, I, I regrouped, paid attention to uh, wind direction and where I thought he would go to bed and um, ended up going back out there. And lo and behold, I stumbled upon him in his bed. I don't think mm. that'll ever happen to me again. Sneaking up on a mature buck. That's that tough. I was lucky. I was lucky he was bedded uh, with the wind in his face. Mm-hmm. That's pretty rare. Usually they'll bed with the wind at their back so mm-hmm. that they can see where they can't smell. Right. But I waited. Um, I stopped and he was right around 30 yards and I waited for about 20 minutes for him to stand up. He had no idea. He stood up, stretched out took a step to the right and I was so focused on what was in front of him and kept playing the shot in my head of how Mm -hmm. it was going to go that I didn't pay close enough attention to what was between us. Mm. And I struck, I struck the limb. Um, Darrow still drove deep into him, but in a um, non-fatal area, I I wish I would have missed that deer or I wish the arrow would have barely poked him. Yeah. Um, and fell out. It drove deep underneath the spine. I, you know, hope the best for that deer. Hope he makes it. But if I'm going to be realistic and honest with you, I imagine he'll probably succumb to an infection from that. Um, yeah. So that was disappointing um, and everything. And then after that, it was just kind of the same old story. Seeing a lot of deer, not not the ones I wanted. I couldn't buy a shot at a doe. Mm. I, I never did. And with Population trends here in Indiana the last several years, once it hits about rut time, or I believe those have been bred or pregnant, I end up leaving them alone, you know, so after a while, I just switched gears to that, and I actually had to battle clear up to black powder season last Sunday, and I finally got a a nice deer on the ground, but just um, didn't happen for me with a bow this year, but, you know, the last two years, I was very fortunate and got you know, nice bucks with a bow and things, but it's like um, Michael Floyd always said, archery is one of those things that you can do everything right, 
you can be 100% prepared and you can have the best equipment on the planet and still come up empty handed. That's a great saying. It's so true. I mean, it's yeah, very, very true. I, yes. And, and I've, you know, um, had a lot of successful hunts in the 13 years that I've bow hunted and I've had a lot of unsuccessful ones as well. And I think the unsuccessful ones though have made me a better hunter overall and have made me a better archer and have, have taught me a lot yeah. and everything else. Cause there's some people I'm sure that have went out there for the very first time with a bow and, and put something on the ground and oh, made sure. a perfect shot and everything. But most archers, it's yeah. not that way. No, you know, that, no. that's, yeah. It, it, it's just not. There's so much that goes into it beyond just the equipment, you know. It, yeah. And the funny thing about a, a, a bow is, you know, that you got to have your grip perfect, this, that, and everything else. And most hunting scenarios from a tree are imperfect scenarios oh, as far as your yeah. foot alignment. Oh, yeah. And, and everything yeah. you know what what if your jacket's a little loose your strength oh, lifts your so jacket, many you know? things you, there's so many variables that are not controlled that when you're shooting in you know july august september or whatever it might be it's warm you're wearing a short sleeve shirt you're on flat ground i mean there's so many variables there that you can't control that at the moment you're making the shot on the animal you're not considering that maybe because it's just, you, like, like you said, you're so focused at times on certain aspects that you do forget about other things. And I, mean, I, I can think back after making certain shots, I'll think back to the position I was actually standing in or how I had to rotate at the waist around, you know, so my, essentially my body was kind of torqued over to make a shot. And I think, how on earth did I even, how did that even work? You know, like when you look at it, it looks like it's poor form you know, but it worked out, but there's, that's a phenomenal point to make. And we need to stress that really strongly to people is that this idea that, you know, a, if you don't harvest something, you're not successful. And B that there's, there's so many things that even if you do everything else, right, it may not go correctly in the end. And, and I think social media, we'll get into this more because social media plays a big role, I believe, in a lot of this, in people's perception of success. What is success? And, you know, getting a, a nice animal down on your first time, I actually think would be a bad thing for a lot of people. I really do. Because I think that sets up an expectation as well of uh, unrealistic expectation in people's minds. And it's too easy. I Yes, I, I agree with that. And so then when something does go wrong, whether it's on the next hunt or 10 hunts later, then what are they going to blame? Are they going to blame their equipment sure. or this or that and everything? Yeah. In reality, it, it's, it's just down. archery. Or it's just it, archery. It just yeah. bow hunting. Yep. And, you know, you make a good point there about the equipment because, you know, at running a business, selling products like we do, that is the reason some people buy our products is they're blaming their equipment. They may have a, a real legitimate point in blaming it. Maybe there was a failure in the equipment or maybe it isn't. Well, of course, we, we believe, believe it's not as good as the other products that are out there. But in people's eyes, they often gravitate towards something that they think is a fix to their issue. You know, it's, well, I have to address this because that must be what let me down. Maybe it did. Maybe it didn't. You know, maybe the stabilizer had nothing to do with it. <laughs> you know, let's just be frank about it. But we're glad, of course, to get those customers. But I don't believe that's where you should be looking at as the root of the issue. You have to look at the entire picture. I, I agree 100%. And 
I really observe that sort of trend of immediately blaming equipment or, or, or getting this bow or this release or this and that. And yep. really, it's a very steep rabbit hole that's expensive. Um, yes. I've noticed that a lot in 3D archery. Well, mm-hmm. my scores weren't as good or this or that. I need this site. Two mm-hmm. weeks later, they got another site. A month yep. later, they got a new bow. Yep. A month after that, they got new arrows. Yeah. You know, and before you know it, they yeah. got they're sitting on enough inventory in their garage to <laughs> open an archery shop, and they're not happy with any of them. And they're losing money when they do sell those products, and then you, if they even sell yeah. them. Yep. 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 That, that's funny that's you say cool. that, man. That is so so consistently true with certain uh, people. I've noticed it with releases yeah. big time uh, yeah. my goodness I, I've seen some people have as many as six or seven releases in their pouch and stuff, and they're, they're nice releases they're right. expensive right you it's, know, it's like my goodness you know you, you think maybe after one or two trying them out <laughs> right if you're splitting hairs one would work but six or seven and well the same applies to bow, to, to you know the bow itself. As you look at, and I'm sure you've experienced this too. There are days where you can be 100% in love with your bow, and then there are days where you're not shooting as well, and you start to doubt and wonder, you know, do I like this bow as much as I thought I did? Is it the bow? Is it me? You can't let that drive your decision making though on products and on fiddling too much with what you're using because i believe strongly in the comfortability and the and the the level of um overall familiarity you have with the gear you use you have to be 100 confident and comfortable with it and know it like the back of your hand if you don't i don't think switching makes any difference and it probably hurts you if anything you know i agree yeah, and you see it all the time. And guys will say, "Well, this bow didn't work out, so I'm going to get another one." There are people that go through five, six bows in a year sometimes, and that's not the way to success, in my view. Now, maybe I'm offending people by saying this, but that's just my personal view. Is you need to to get a product that works for you, and then keep using it, and keep shooting it, and improve yourself and the way you're using the product, not change products. So, you know, and that might be odd. Again, I, I've often said this. So I, some of the things I, I, you know, express on this show might go, um, might be contradictory to being successful in a business in a way. But I would even say to someone that came to me, if, if they're experiencing a high level of accuracy and they're comfortable with their current stabilizer, I'm not going to tell them they have to switch to ours because they're already experiencing success. You know, it, that is so important as an archer. And I just, I want to share that conviction with people. That's how I personally feel about it. You know, aside from selling products. Yeah. And, um, and really you can only buy a certain level of accuracy. Yep. The rest of it is a tuned in and B it comes from forming an excellent relationship with your equipment. And yes. one thing, um, my dad did, um, with me and my brother, when we were growing up, he did this with guns and, and bows. Is he would get by his decent equipment, but he wouldn't splurge mm-hmm. at first. Just good, solid stuff to hunt with mm-hmm. and mess around with in the backyard. And his goal was for us to get as good as we possibly could with that mid-level stuff to where we were splitting hairs. Like, yeah. man, if I had this, I would get those extra points on the 3D range. If I had this, I could shoot 10 mm-hmm. yards further mm-hmm. and things. So once you're splitting hairs, 
then you make your upgrade. But some people right. just think they, they've immediately right. got to go premium. Yeah. And, and what defines premium? Well, you know, uh, somebody's opinion. That's you subjective. Know, marketing, advertising. Very subjective. subjective. Very subjective. And yes, premium level gear like we manufacture in the in good hands, in competent hands that are experienced and, 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 you know, are able to extract from that gear what it's capable of will produce better accuracy, long range, will do a lot of things for people. But it, 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 it's, it's a multiple step process here. You know, you have to advance personally. The equipment has to advance at the same time to, to get the, the benefits, in my view. So what your dad did is 100% what you know, anyone who's getting someone into hunting or shooting should do is you need to be as proficient as possible first, you know, and that dispels the idea. I believe that a lot of people have that certain products or bows just don't have an inherent level of accuracy. Yes, they do. If it's a well-made product, it will have an inherent level of high degree of accuracy potential in it. You have to find it. It's there. You know, it is certainly there. And, you know, you know, we're not, you know, as I often say, you know, guys want to try every kind of bow out there. I understand they're making an investment. Um, if you're going to be doing, you know, you know, going for a high level competition, you're going to Vegas and you have a chance to win it. You better have the best possible shooting bow in your hand. But that's not to say that there's a variety of other bows out there that you couldn't shoot pretty darn well with. You know, it may not be the best, uh, most accurate, but it, there's a lot that could be very close. So, you know, when it comes to our gear, when it comes to how you view gear, I think we're on a similar wavelength. I really do. Yeah. And there are certain products that, that I don't use. But I'm like, I like that product. That's a good product. I use this for this reason, but that would be a good one too. You know, and yeah. all of these bows that are on the market today from, you know, your, your top, 10 or 12 manufacturers, they're all designed to outshoot the shooter. Oh, for sure. The differences yeah. arise when you put a person behind the riser. Yeah. That's when you start to see the differences. Yeah. yeah. And some people perceive various aspects of different bows different ways. You know, I, I often think about, you know, when you go to, say, a trade show and you shoot a bow at a trade show or a consumer show, I mean, you're, you're, you're in an environment there that may not be the okay. most conducive to really evaluating that bow. You know, and but a lot of times people will base their buying decisions on a couple quick shots that they took at a show. Um, you know, I don't know that that your impression the first time, depending on the environment you're in, is completely accurate on what you feel from it, what you think its potential is. Uh, you know, if you have uh, a person there looking to sell that product, it's likely you're going to feel a little bit of pressure to you know impress them, <laughs> to you know make them feel like you think it's a good bow. You know, there's all these factors that go into why people purchase things and what they feel about them. And archery is a lot about feel. Let's face it. It's emotional. It's very emotional. And, uh, oh, yeah. you know, so, yeah, th th this area in particular, you could spend many episodes on. You could spend hours on getting into these aspects of things. But to kind of circle back to the hunting again here. Um, so, so your season, those ups and downs that you had. Uh, I want to focus more on that because I think we need to stress that that the failure should I mean, whether you feel it, you probably should feel, you know, let down in some ways. But that's not a bad thing. We need to bounce back from it. We need to learn from it. And we should experience some of it. 
And how do you prepare for the next season then? Like, how does that affect what you do next year, what you experienced this year? Um, I, I guess one thing, if I ever run into a scenario where I'm on the ground um, and about to shoot a deer, I'll look every single place possible, not just in, in front of that deer, but in between us. Um, also, too, one thing that, that kind of hurt me as um, in early firearm season when I was still bow hunting and things is uh, there's neighboring properties next to where I hunt. And I hunt just timber, you mm. know, uh, just shy of 300 acres of hardwoods and mm. hill country, no no food plots, mm. no nothing. And there's nothing wrong with that. I would hunt over one if I had one, but that's just not the terrain I hunt. Yeah. The neighboring properties traditionally have always been excellent bedding areas. One uh, to the south is a very huge cedar thicket, mm. and to the north was just a massive, it, it leads up from a river bottom, just nasty thicket. Well, on both of those properties, there have been some habitat alterations that mm. have taken place, and those individuals don't bow hunt, they just gun hunt, so that's when the pressure comes in. Right. Well, I've learned this year that due to the recent habitat alterations and pressure that my honey holes mm. in early rival season, things like that, aren't honey holes anymore. Yeah. The deer are feel pressured and they, they smell them and everything. Yeah. And they actually, which is a good thing, bed on my property more now yeah. in the middle of the property. So mm. that's the adjustment I had to make, make in black powder season so that that's one i will um for sure um also i i felt good about the shot i did take with my bow and everything but for whatever reason this hunting season i i felt like i shot way more in the summer than i ever did in the fall and i think we're all guilty of it once beer season starts we don't shoot yeah, enough not enough you know and I, and I don't think that had anything to do with what happened to me but um I, I still, that's one thing I'll probably change and prepare yeah. for. Yeah. Yeah, you know, for sure. But, hmm. you know, just keep keep shooting. Um, just realize, you know, uh, when you hunt big uh, sections of timber and things and there's a lot of options for a deer to go to, you've got to definitely focus on their bedding and if they're still using it. And if there's an alteration, then yeah. I didn't find out till later in the season, like, now that's why I've been having a tougher time in this part of this spot yeah. because I've looked across the fence and like, oh my goodness, somebody just, you know, went all wild with a bush hog soup here. Right. So, yeah, it's a great, uh, it's a great learning right there. And, you know, I, I've seen the same thing in my own hunting here. It, I, the one uh, public land track that I hunt, that's essentially similar to what, what you do. It's all timber and it's, you know, there, there are, some agricultural fields probably well, at least five to 700 yards or more away. I mean, they're, they're quite a ways off, maybe even further than that. And that's on private land. I hunt public. And y you walk into an area like this and it's there's not some obvious sign that says this is where the deer are going to be attracted to in this particular region. You, you have to really think and look at the terrain and start to base off, base your kind of, you know, your calculations off of that and start to look at what would likely be the patterns of movement here. What are the saddles? What are the, you know, these different ridges that you see? And that's something I learned this year. And here I've been doing it for so long. And I feel at times, sometimes I feel, you know, almost like I was, 
uh, foolish in the past. You know, I look at it and say, wow, you know, I was so uneducated in the past how I approach certain aspects of hunting. But that's just the way it goes. You know, you don't you don't have a playbook. You don't have a manual necessarily to tell you exactly what you need to do. You need to you learn from it. You learn from mistakes. And, you know, there's times where I blew shots or, you know, had deer win me that if I had just known a little more that I do now, it wouldn't have happened. You know, but I'm glad it, I'm glad I wasn't successful in those cases because I'm kind of hard headed at times <laughs> and I need to experience the pain of that, you know, of not being successful to learn. So uh, so that's that's a that's a great, uh, you know, it's a great lesson. And I, I'm glad you shared that. So something you mentioned early on that I found really interesting when you said it was a, a spike or he was like a, a, a big spike, I think it was. That you were interested. yeah, he had yeah. one spike, okay. one single spike. Yeah, and but you mentioned he was a big body deer, and that struck me. It struck a chord with me because I have similar values on deer. I'd rather have a large body deer with a small rack than have a nice rack and a you know a small body. So uh, that could lead us into a whole other area, and we, I think we want to touch on this: is that how people gauge trophies or what they consider a trophy, and how pervasive this idea is that you must have a certain number of inches um let's talk about that so you don't take that approach obviously no um and to definitely you know give listeners a little bit more insight onto how i look at that i have never put a piece of tape within 10 feet of any buck that i have ever killed and I pass up a lot of bucks, things like that, but um, the number of inches has absolutely nothing to do with it. Um, to me, a nice buck is a nice buck, mm-hmm. whether it's a 115-inch deer in hill country or a 195-inch deer in Saskatchewan. Mm-hmm. A nice buck is a nice buck to me, yeah. and it kind of just really disappoints me that there are some people that take a deer, you know, and they're all pumped up about it things, and they go to get a score by by some guru or whatever. Well, I, I don't think it'll make it. It doesn't have enough on a G3 or G7 or this right. or that and all that stuff goes over my head because I don't care. Yeah, I, I don't Same care here. about that stuff. Same that here. shouldn't define my hunt. Right. And, um, you know, I, I've seen numerous people be very disappointed when their butt didn't make a book by a couple inches and it's like yeah. I, you're disappointed yeah. just because of something like that it's a piece of paper your name's right. in a w- little book for something and also too does that define how good of a hunter you are mm-hmm. you know what what's what makes a better hunter an individual on a canned hunt shooting 195 inch deer five feet rather stand or somebody right. doing a spot and stock shooting a spike at 70 yards with a bow right. which took more skill a lot more you know so that that yeah. that means nothing uh, yeah. to me i i know individuals that that have killed huge massive monstrous deer that it was luck yeah it was just luck so yeah. that doesn't mean they're a better hunter than you or, or me yeah. or anyone else out there and yeah. and stuff so i i just i don't get into that i look for a, a deer that i believe is mature and mature to me is you know three and a half or older with with at least a rack that goes out to his ears or just he, maybe he doesn't have spread but he's got good mass or something or right. 
that one horn spike I saw that, you know, was obviously a mature deer. And some yeah. people say, yeah, good choice. It's bad genetics. Me, it's like, eh, right. I don't know about the genetic side of it. Sure, whatever. Right. But there's just as much from a doe that goes into the genetic makeup of the deer. But Absolutely. it was a mature deer with my bow. Right. So, of course, yeah, I would have yeah. been pumped up about it. Yeah, you see so much talk. If you spend any time on the Facebook groups that are out there, which I've left a lot of, by the way, um, or if you just browse around Instagram, even, you know, there's a lot of talk about if, if you shot a smaller buck, a lot of people assume that you did it for herd management purposes, for genetics. <laughs> and yeah, or if, if you didn't do that, then you're opening yourself up to criticism. It's like, well, you should have let that one walk, you know, and really who, who, who's to say that that decision should be made, uh, why you know let's let's get into more about the why rather than so much of the judgmental you should have done this you shouldn't have done that and there's a lot of judgment going on so you make good points i completely agree you have to be um you have to con if you're going to look at the size of the of the the rack and the age of the deer and then judge the quality of the hunter on that then you could look at a long period of time and say okay this person consistently harvests really mature deer they must be a good hunter or you could be a 10 year old kid with a, with a crossbow who just happened to wander out into a blind and have a 185 inch deer walk by and they nailed it does that make them a good hunter no so we need to break it down and talk about it and you know it's there's an article that you posted i saw it i, I liked it and it, it can you explain a little bit about that article about how someone was disappointed about the size of the rack yeah, um, I, and I can't remember how old the kid was. That you know, he may have been ten or twelve or something. But there's this lady that that contacted um, an official deer score and and uh, had a pretty nice buck that her son killed. And I think they had had it mounted already and um, took it in. And he said, "Well, sure, you know, I'd, I'd be honored to do that." And you know, he scored it in front of her and then went in private, did it again to make sure everything matched up and stuff. And um, it measured out to be just over 164 inches. Great deer. Yeah. You know, that's awesome. Yeah. Huge deer. You know, tremendous deer. A uh, buck of a lifetime for a lot of people. Yeah. And um, she kept throwing a fit, crying and saying, you know, this can't be right. You know, this grandpa said it was over 170 inches, you yeah. know, and it won't make this certain book or something oh, if boy. it doesn't. And mm. he scored it again and it turned out the same. And she just kind of ripped up the paper and then mm. took the, the deer and stormed out of there. And it's like, mm. that's a, what are you thinking? Like, that, yeah. that's a huge deer. That's an awesome deer, yeah, a, you know, and that may be the biggest deer right. that that young man ever kills. And people are crying and upset yeah. about it. That's so sad. Yeah, I mean, I, it's that's just a uh, yeah. what kind of a what kind of a, a commentary on society and hunting is that really? When you think about what that means, what 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 what's driving people to care that much? And I do believe social media contributes to it. I do believe that the you know fixation on you know, bigger is better, you know, is, is part of this. I, I don't know exactly. I do know I, you know, you and I talked for a few minutes before we started recording. And, and I said at that point, when I was getting into hunting, when I was a young kid been doing it 26 years now, uh, with a bow anyway, longer than that with, with gun, I started when I was 12. Uh, you know, there was never any, even, even thought about that. Like I didn't, I didn't know people that were trophy hunters and no one talked like that. 
So it's a foreign concept to me in a lot of ways. Yeah, and you know, and I don't know how it was um, years ago in, in Pennsylvania, but I know here in Indiana, really, the, the prevalence of white-tailed deer did not start until probably the late '80s or early '90s. So, if someone was hunting in the 1950s, 60s, or 70s, if they shot a little a spike or something like that, that was a big deal. Yeah, it was a huge deal. Yeah, you know, and even um, my dad when he was hunting in the late 80s, his first year is a nice little basket rack, eight point buck. He was king of the school. Yeah. yeah. You know, because, it, yeah. it, you know, there just weren't a lot of deer around. That was right when, when deer were kind of starting to, mm. to get back into Indiana and take off and, mm. and things. And it, it used to be just uh, about the hunt. You know, yeah. about the thrill of the hunt, you know, and of course the meat that comes from it mm-hmm. and the enjoyment out of doing it. Yeah. And, and it's still that way for quite a few people. Oh, it is. But it's the, it main, is. the mainstream ideologies and things, and a lot of what funds the mainstream, you know, is the hunting industry and television and things. And there's, you know, a, a few shows that are okay, but right. most of them, you know, I don't care for them. We could. Yeah. you know, go down that rabbit hole a later date, but yeah, um, yeah. That's... when you look at it, what sells, you know, right. a, a big buck, you right. know, and things are at least that's a perception, so that's what's pushed, and, you know, people look like real heroes letting 150-inch deer walk by him because yeah. the G2 yeah. was two inches too short, and he was only four and a half instead of seven right. and a half, you know, and right. if that's how you look at yeah. it, knock yourself out. Well, sure. You know, I mean, we're do not it, saying you know, don't don't do that if that's what suits you. I mean, I'm not here to say that. I'm not here to tell someone they can't take that approach. But I am here to say that you shouldn't put others down if they don't take the same exactly. approach. That's what I'll exactly. say. Exactly. Exactly. And that shouldn't be the, the mainstream ideology that's fed to new hunters. I, I personally, I feel like there's never been a worse time to be a new hunter. In yeah. this day and age, and yeah. things are so much, you know, you, you see these poor, poor guys on, on these forums and things that they may not have had a dad to, to teach them about hunting or may not have had a dad, uncle, grandpa that took them out or anything, and but they want to get into it. And they ask questions on social media, and there's 40 responses, and yeah. probably 38 of them are wrong. That are just personal opinion and everything, yep. and yep. what's that say to these new guys getting yeah. into this? It's, you know, what what are they supposed to? Think? I don't know exactly, and I, I would imagine they're walking away with some hurt feelings and and not being entirely sure that they made the right choice to become part of the hunting community. Maybe that's the impression they leave with, and that shouldn't be what happens, you know. And I, I think I think it's natural given the outlets people have to to demonstrate their success in the field. It's natural to use these outlets. We have Facebook, we have Instagram, we have Twitter and all these things. People want to get um, approval. They want to show what they've accomplished. So it's understandable that people are using it. And it makes sense in a lot of ways to me now, when you think more deeply on it, it makes sense that, that, that we are seeing this explosion of focus on, on trophy because if that had been available in the 70s and 80s and you know early 90s, people would have used it and it would have created that sooner. So it's just we have these channels. We have this technology now. And that's what's brought about a lot of the focus. And that's what the gratification, I mean, the glorification rather, the glorification 
of that aspect of hunting. So, you know, it's, it's not, it's not a mystery really, I guess, how it transpired and how it all played out, but it's, it's unfortunate. And, you know, you have also too, when you look at young hunters, a lot of competition for their time, a lot of electronics, a lot of other things that people are getting into. Um, you know, so I know we talked about on the one episode with, you know, with Mike Lawrence, we talked about crossbows and that'd be something interesting. I'd like to share, you know, get into with you at some point, maybe even now, if you have time, um, oh, yeah. you know, it, like the upsides and the downsides of that, I, you know, this article that I read stated that, that it, the, the push early on was to try to recruit more hunters because of the declining numbers of licenses that were being sold. And it made sense to try to, you know, expose people to crossbows and give them another option. But there may be some backlash that's being seen. Uh, how do you see that issue? Um, well, I think that, and I think there were probably other motives to the legalization of it as well. You know, I'm sure there were some manufacturers that, that behind the scenes lobbied hard, but I think that it keeps maybe older individuals that, that just can't, you know, they don't feel they could draw back the bow. Now, of course, you know, you can kill all sorts of things with 35, 40-pound bow, especially right. nowadays. They're oh, faster yeah. than they've ever been before and efficient. And, you know, I feel like when I'm older, have shoulder problems, I'm going to hang on as long as I can, even if I'm shooting the legal minimum. But um, not everybody's that way. Um, yeah, they they with older generations, I'm sure they have got more participation in archery season mm-hmm. at least. But um, I, I I don't know that they've really gotten any actual new hunters into right. the fold from it. What they've gotten is just um, a lot of people that didn't bow hunt to begin with or now in the woods during archery season, but they would have been hunting during gun season. So it's in a way it's created more participation, but it's, it's participation from people that were already participating. It was just in a different season. Um, you know, and to me personally, I think there should just be a a special crossbow season like there used to be, or if you, you know, did have a, a handicap, yeah. for you know, shoulder issues or whatever you could hunt during archery. I mean, that's how I think it should should be personally. And but the fact that it's not is you know whatever. Um, you know, it, I don't know how many states exactly was it something like twenty six or something that have full inclusion. I think it's somewhere in that neighborhood. Yeah, I know PA now yeah. does, PA does, and Maryland does, and you know, but it wasn't always yeah. like that. I remember when I started hunting. That was a, that was a, a very, um, you know, an, an area of, of strangeness to me when I got into archery. I knew no one that had a crossbow and only people that could use them. Yes. If you had a significant handicap of some type and, you know, so, so when it was brought into the general, the general archery season for anyone, it was a controversial move and a lot of people had issues with that. Um, you know, I, I don't want people to hear hear me wrong. I'm not putting you down if you use a crossbow. I I don't have an issue with that. Taking a deer legally with any choice of weapon is fine. It's I like to debate. I like to talk about what effect things have, and you can't ignore that there are effects. 
You cannot ignore that. You have to look at the realities of situations. And you're right, I think, in that you're just seeing a crossover of existing hunters for the most part, just picking up across. That's why I got into archery to begin with. I started out gun hunting when I was 12. And by the time I hit 16, I started to think, man, I could have a lot more fun out in the woods and in a better climate if I was using a bow. And I was fascinated by that and I got into it. That might be why some people are picking up crossbows now. Oh, yeah. And it, it, it extends seasons and whatnot. What was interesting is it crossbows haven't been legal for very long in Indiana, but um, it seemed like at least here in Indiana, I think it was either two or three years ago, I think it was three when it was actually fully inclusive into archery season is it seemed like the rest of the states were like dominoes. Everybody kind of took it up right in that two to three year you know, window, which seemed weird to me, usually, like, you know, you look at the legalization of something, and whether it be like, I guess, marijuana, for example, one state, yeah, one state at a time, really slow, you know, and and I doubt all 50 it'll ever be, but that one, it was like a domino effect, just, you know, like the snap of a finger, And, and I agree with you, I don't have an issue if somebody chooses to use a crossbow or anything. Now, I do think that it should be its own season, but I, do as well. I don't yeah. have a problem with people using it. The only issue I've had is that some um, people that, that were just primarily gun hunters, and I don't have a problem with gun hunters. I hunt with a gun now and then, but people that were primarily just only gun hunters that have, have taken up a crossbow, they they don't understand the idiosyncrasies of mm. archery, mm. you know, the technical aspects, because just because cases, you can hold yeah. it like a gun, it is not a gun. No. Just because no. marketers say it'll shoot at a hundred yards. Yeah. Doesn't mean you can't. No. You certainly know, not. and certainly some not. people yeah. treat it like a gun. And so many people, you know, a high shoulder hit on a deer with a gun is deadly. Not mm-hmm. only the, the, the shock usually shuts down their right. nervous system, ruptures their spine and you get the vitals. Right. If you do that with a crossbow, mm, you're probably not so going to find that deer. Not so good. You won't find that deer. Nope. Yeah, nope. and people nope. have done it. I've, nope. I've uh, heard of people trying to shoot deer in the neck with a crossbow. Oh, like, no. It, yeah. No. Yeah. yeah. It, it's no. bad. And if you're, going, if you're going to use a crossbow, at least treat it differently than you would a gun. Because right. it's not a gun. Yeah. It's not. And it's still to an extent is somewhat primitive for the fact that you're putting a stick with a sharp employee in through the vitals of an animal. Right. In that sense. In that sense. Yes. And and people that uh, some of them don't treat it like that, you know, and I feel bad for people that, that really hunt are good, successful bow hunters on public land that have noticed an influx of people in the yeah. woods. Now, if that individual has a crossbow and they're paying attention to the wind and being respectful and right. setting up right, okay, fine, yeah. fine. But some of them are walking around like it's off and stalk with right. a gun and a deer yeah. drive. And it's like, that's, that's not bow hunt. Yeah. Well, it, I guess you could say that in, in people's eyes, it lowers the bar for entry. And they feel that less commitment on their part is required and less overall work. And yeah, you could make the argument that there is probably less time that you need to become very proficient than you would with a compound or a recurve. 
But that's not to say that you don't have to put it a substantial amount of time in to become oh. familiar. And but I think people yeah. see it as that way. They see it as the bar is lowered. It's easier for me to you know accomplish my goal of harvesting an animal. And you're right on, on all the points you made. You know, trajectory is different. You know, the if you look at you know stability and flight and overall retention of energy, you know, all, a longer arrow has better aerodynamics than a short crossbow bolt does. So yeah. as you get out far, you know, that crossbow bolt drops a lot. You know, I don't care. Oh, what, yeah. I don't care how many thousand dollars you pay for your crossbow. It doesn't matter. You know, it, it's just that's physics. So, you know, that, that's those are all great, great points. And it's food for thought for people. because That's what that's the point of the show is we're putting things out there to get you thinking, to get you challenging ideas. Maybe it it brings you to some new conclusions. Maybe it maybe it aggravates and irritates you. We hope that's not the case. But but we do hope we make you think. So uh, that's why I wanted to touch on that. And I think there's one other area that we should probably put in about. We have about 12 minutes until we hit an hour. And it, my, my recording uh, program here lets me do about an hour at a time. So let's sum up with this here last topic. Women in, in hunting and also specifically the women we have on our team. I'd like you to touch on some of the things you mentioned in the past about that. Oh, yeah. Um, one observation I've noted, and this should be a permanent sports center stat of the night. Um, <laughs> right. Our female staff members collectively, I believe, have taken down more bear with a bow than any other collective staff of an archery accessory company and maybe somebody can fact check that or whatever but i mean that's awesome i mean we have some absolute cold-blooded killers i feel like you know um anytime i see a picture of one of them with a bear or something it's like ted nugent's queen of the forest you know (laughs) they're out there just like michelle Mm -hmm. i were just braining them you know And, and they all appear to be self-sufficient women mm-hmm. in terms of the hunting yeah you know they're, they're they none of them seem to be having a, a boyfriend or somebody constantly telling them where to go or right. something they all seem to stick it out and do things on their own and yeah. i'm pretty proud of that because um i feel like there there's in certain groups of, of the industry i feel like there's the I guess the the hunt quote unquote huntress movement or something where a lot of pro staff positions, brand ambassador positions, you know, what have you, whatever you want to call it for women aren't always merit based. Sometimes it's based on looks and appeal and things. And I truly feel that our female staff members are not where they are with us because of their looks. Now they're all good looking women. Sure, you know, and I mean that sure. the most respectful way possible. They're mm-hmm. all good looking ladies, but the point is that's not why they're in no, the position they are. But they're there because yep. they are committed to archery. They're committed to doing things right and, and being successful and working hard and, and actually yeah. not being in selfie mode all the time, but actually posing behind dead animals. So I love it. Yeah. It's it's just great. You nailed it. You hit nail on the head there. Uh, you know, we have a group of people very amongst our group. I'd say we have, I don't know offhand, I have to count, but I think we have anywhere from 10 to 15 women on our, on our team right now. And amongst that relatively small sample size, there's a lot of phenomenal bow kills in that group. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that's impressive. And like you said, I mean, you could put that up against at least proportionally put that up against anyone out there. And I think we would probably be uh, we'd have the upper hand on that as far out with success. So, uh, you know, they've done a great job and I want to have some of the individual team members that are willing anyway to be on the show, have them come on and talk and talk. You know, I touched on it the other day, but I want to have them talk about how they feel they're perceived in the industry and if they've experienced any bias or challenges. You know, it's certainly not fair to to judge everyone on, under the same lens. But I think social media, again, does contribute to that. You, know, you mentioned huntresses. That's a it's become a trending term, huntress. And some of the some of the impressions that are put out there could could lead to people dismissing women to some extent, women hunters, right. because of the things yeah. that are put out. And this is not to say that you can't, you know, be attractive and beautiful and, and display that in some way and also be good at hunting, as you mentioned. You, that's not to say that, but that could skew how people see it. And, you know, we, we, we want to focus on the, the merits of people's skill and their accomplishments as hunters and, and leave the other parts out. But it, from a marketing end, it makes complete sense. I mean, people realize oh, yeah. that sex sells <laughs> and people realize yeah. that, you know, if you want the most eyeballs on something in a male dominated sport, it's a no brainer. I guess they see it. People see it that way. But that's not how we select people. It's not what we do. So. Um, right. Yeah. And, and I. And with with that influx of things happening that way, you know, I, I feel bad for like ladies. Uh, for example, like a Michelle Eichler, she is an awesome bow hunter yeah. without Fred by her side. Mm-hmm. It, it's just an, a, a cold blooded killer. I feel bad for women like her yeah. and for women like our team members and things because of just what you said, perception. Yeah. Because eventually, people quit who and all and then they right. want to see the merits of something and they're like oh she's just a pro staff because right. you know you know look, look right. at her pictures or whatever she's just a pretty face and yeah. and there's a lot of women out there that work hard and they have the merit yeah. and the the accolades to back up why they are where they are 100%. but they can get washed in with the rest and, and that's unfortunate yeah and that's you know, that's something that we can talk about and we can certainly try to, you know, put our opinion out there and, and work against that. But as long as the audience gravitates to it, people will continue to use that as a, a form of promotion and a form of marketing. So, you know, it's it's a battle, I'm sure. And yeah, like I said, I hope I get some of these people on and they can discuss that and, uh, you know, kind of share their opinions. So I, I think we covered a lot today. Uh, do you anything in particular additional you'd like to touch on before we go? Um, just quickly, um, kind of reiterating how we started. Um, I'm very, very, and I'm going to pat you on the back here, very proud to be a member of this team because of the way you run this company. You, you know, you don't bite on the flashing lights. You don't, quote, unquote, sell your soul. Yeah, so to no. speak, to get by, you really are extremely genuine, one hundred percent raw, honest, and a good-natured person, and that's reflected through the craftsmanship of the products that you produce and the selection of the team members you've selected. So, Thank for you. anyone out there that listens to this that isn't a, a, a team member yet, definitely get on board with the next wave. 
get on board with the next wave of additions because the, these are the things you get. I don't know if there's any other CEO that is accessible as you are, Sam. And that means a lot. And well, that goes a long way. That so means a lot. Members, <laughs> that, mind. that means a lot that you would say that. And uh, it's something that I don't care how big TAP ever gets. I have no idea where it'll end up in the future. But I, I want to retain that. I don't want to lose that because like I said early on from a personal perspective, it means a lot, but, but also too, to me, a company offers value in a couple, couple areas. It offers value in the products. Obviously they have to be top notch, but in many ways, I feel like the, the personal connection and level of service you can give people means more. And, and there's too much that's, going on today and in various industries where you just see example after example of poor customer service and nobody really seems to care. And in the end, if you have a good product, but you don't have that part of it, then you're failing as a company, I think. And, you know, you have to have both sides of it. So I appreciate it because as you know, I pour hundred percent of myself into this and it drains me at the end of every week. I'm, I'm pretty beat, but I, but I, but I feel like I feel the sense of accomplishment that, that it means something. And if in the end, you know, we, we don't get any bigger early than we are now, so be it. There's not a predefined goal here. It's just put good products out, provide good service, have fun talking to you guys, enjoy bow hunting, enjoy archery and whatever shakes out is, is fine in the end. So that's my view. And like Josh said, please apply because you will not, you will not regret joining this team. This is different than a lot of groups out there. So that'll sum it up for today. And I thank you, Josh, for being on phenomenal episode. Stay tuned for more to come in the future. We're trying to put out as much content as we can. So take care, everyone. Stay tapped out.